0: I'm Casada Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Reem Asil. She joins us from Oakland, where currently she's the owner of the bakery Reems, California. Chef Asil is also an author, an activist, a mother, and most recently, an actor. We'll be discussing her role in the scripted digital series Normal Ain't Normal. The series explores neighbors in Oakland navigating life post pandemic. And we explore what Chef Asile's life looks like since her book was published. Plus, we talk about how she navigates life with energy moving in multiple directions. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today, or it could be a meal from any time in your life that you have a really great memory about.
1: Uh, Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, something I've eaten. Have I eaten? Yes, I have eaten. And I'm shy to say that I had a chocolate chip tahini cookie for breakfast. <laughs> Not proud about it. But it was freshly baked
0: in my bakery. And I couldn't uh, resist. So. Awesome. I mean, that sounds like a good breakfast to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a jam packed episode here. So we're hopping right in. Um, we're going to start with your website. So on your website, the words describing you are beautiful quote, a Palestinian Syrian speaker and chef based in Oakland, working at the intersection of food, community, and social justice with food as a tool. Reem uses Arab hospitality to build strong, resilient community. That description encompasses a lot how do you navigate life with energy moving in multiple directions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I ask myself that question every day. I think it's important to ask myself that question every day with all the things on my plate, uh, figuratively and literally. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think what feeds me or feeds my soul, uh, so to speak, is really knowing that, you um, you know, using food as a conduit for building community. It's sort of the, the purpose that I've leaned into. I know that um, what I'm doing is just so much bigger than my restaurant or what we're serving in that day, but, you know, really changing the lives of workers here in Oakland and San Francisco, but also changing the culture uh, in this industry and beyond. And, I just really feel very proud to have other Arabs look up to me or um, women uh, who are trying to get in the food industry look to me. Uh, so keeping all of that in mind helps me stay focused because I get excited about a lot of things. <laughs> I'm one of those uh, chefs who are like, okay, let's put that on, you know, let, let's add that to the menu. Let's add that to the menu. Um, and, you know, while it's great to have abundance, having the focus um, to make sure that. We're feeding folks Mm -hmm. well.
0: Absolutely. If I say your thoughts create, your words shape, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It could be a time in your life, a favorite quote, anything.
1: I feel like the thoughts that I always, that always pop up in my head is how do I create connection here? Uh, That's immediately where I want to go. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the, our love language has many different ways. I think that I, it has taken me a long time to find the words. Um, I think those of us who live in diaspora, who are children of immigrants, who are the other, we've been silenced for a long time. So trying to put words to our experience has been really tough. And so, um, you know, acts of kindness and and getting into the organizing realm and making change became the way that I did that. And just more recently, I think that I've been able to put words to what it is that I do. Um, and so I try to approach every situation like that, kind of use words that resonate with people and inspire people uh, that meet people where they're at. Um, that's really what I try to do in every facet of my work. Beautiful. Beautiful
0: speaking of organizing before entering the culinary (laughs) world, you worked as a labor and community organizer. And I'm wondering, is there one moment maybe that stands out to you from that time in your life?
1: Ooh, there's several moments, but I think that one of the moments um, that I think really just kind of solidified for me, ah, this is what, you know, that, that, my role in this world as an organizer is a seed planter. You know, organizing is really about bringing people together to realize their power, right, collectively. But it is so much more than that. It takes time. It's like, really planting the seeds for growth, um, so that they find, you know, step into their power on their own. And I was an organizer. I was a labor organizer back in the day. Um, I used to organize airport workers who um, worked for sub-minimum wages doing security jobs in the airport. These are people who are supposed to look out for our security being paid, um, you know, something like $7 an hour at the time, if you can imagine. And these were people who had worked in the airports for om- over 10 years um, in their experience and never seen a raise and they had families and, um, they had responsibilities and, uh, we organized, uh, to we, I went from organizing those folks being afraid to tell me what their wage was to delegating to the corporate bosses, uh, that they need a union. And, Um, I witnessed their transformation from being scared to delegating. And that was just really eye opening for me of like what that transformation looks like. And I became addicted to it because I never had that growing up, you know. And so that was one moment. But the thing that really solidified for me that this was what I was meant to do was that years later, I was working at another organization where we were organizing residents and workers around um, uh, these hotel developments that were going up in their areas. Um, and I was doing a workshop in the schools with youth who were talking about how they'd like to see their cities developed. And I drove the um, the teacher's aid home from that workshop. And she was telling me her story and she was telling me about her dad who was an airport worker. And as you you probably know where this story goes, and I'm like, "Which airport?" And you know, we got to start talking. She's like, "Oh my god, you don't even know what that did for my family when um, when they got their union, like how it changed my my dad and the household, and like he just it just everything became a lot easier." Um, and to me, that was just like, "This is what it's all about—the ripple effects of." what you do you may not see it right then and there Um, but what that does for a community when you build leadership to people who have um, been on the margins and not been allowed to step into their leadership what that could do for their families for their communities their neighborhoods not just in the workplace so it was amazing I
0: have tears in my eyes (laughs) that's just that's so beautiful that
1: full circle moment yeah yeah Yeah. Like who would have known, you know, that's something that I did.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, That's beautiful. Well, fast forward. How do you stay true to yourself now while navigating the ups and downs of being a chef?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the the transition from organizing people to delegate to the boss, then Now, becoming the boss was a very tough transition, if you can imagine. Um, You know, when I dreamt up of Reams, I never thought that I was going to excel in my career at the pace that I did. I didn't even really know what a chef was at the time or, you know, any of these kind of plagues of the food industry and and the role of the chef and uh, all of the implications of that position uh and so uh it was rough in the beginning um but i have found a stride really uh of how to both step into my power because i think it was it's important as uh, a woman of color uh as someone who identifies as arab to be in that position of leadership like i don't think uh it's taking away from it but also how to see myself side by side with my employees creating this beautiful thing that we've created over the last you know now 7 years it's a, crazy to imagine in 7 years how far we've come that even though it's my name <laughs> on the logo that reams is just so much more than me as a chef and um that helps me navigate (laughs) because you can't do it all on your own. You have to um, involve everybody in that process. So that's, that's really helped me kind of stay grounded Mm. in it all.
0: I'd like you to go back in time. Take me back to the day that you opened your first restaurant. Please describe what opening day was like. And what the transition also into the first two years was like, what hurdles and highlights stand out to you? Um, I
1: vividly remember the day after our first soft opening in which I uh, laid on the ground of my new restaurant floor and um, my employees left me there to sleep. (laughs) and went out to celebrate over a drink. And I woke up and it was like pitch dark. And I was like, where is everybody? That's how tired I was. Uh, We were running up against the clock. I think that opening my first restaurant was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, I was very lucky to have been part of a program called La Cocina, which is a, and a food business incubator program here in San Francisco that helps women, uh, formalize their business. So I had a lot of help, um, in navigating all of the things from like, how do you raise money? Like we had to get loans to, you know, figuring out how a kitchen flow. I had never been, I was a baker by trade, so I had never run a restaurant service. I had to learn all of that on the go. Um, so they really helped me kind of leading up to that moment, but you can have a plan and all of those plans can go out the door once people walk in the door. And, um, I learned a lot in those first two years. Uh, I burnt out, uh, I came back from burnout. I, uh, you know uh, learned how to delegate uh, how to um, simplify you can't do everything all at once you can't be an expert Um, but we had a lot of people walking through the door people really really excited about reams I think that um, our ethos and my my worldview kind of my approach to business is kind of like my approach to organizing which is uh, you know that most people say build it and they will come. We say no, just let them build it with you because <laughs> they'll be that much more invested. And so from the very beginning, um, that has been our approach. We had a Kickstarter in which we literally had the Arabic names of people who donated to our Kickstarter on our walls. So that helped uh, people really stay invested in reams even through the ups and downs um we weren't in an easy neighborhood to start with uh to get people to come to our space it was you know in a plaza where people couldn't see us it didn't have the foot traffic so we had to generate that foot traffic so we we really had to meet people where they were at i wanted to have a morning bakery people didn't understand our food to be morning food so we had to really open for lunch and dinner you know, I said I'd never have my falafel on my menu, but the people really loved falafel. So it's one of our best sellers now, you know, kind of meeting people halfway. And so, yeah, we navigated all of those ups and downs. We were, uh, I think, being a small business owner is not for the faint of heart. We started with pretty much no money in the bank. We literally had the construction workers on our opening day um you know putting nails in the wall we're like we if i didn't make this any clearer we have to be open like we literally need money in the door (laughs) they're like we're not done yet but i'm like we're ready to go um so yeah so we had to navigate a lot of the the financial hardships of starting out and just how expensive it is to open a restaurant and
0: uh and you did it
1: (laughs) we did it (laughs) We made it <laughs> up until the pandemic, of course, which is when we sold um, our first restaurant. But we had opened a second restaurant right before the shutdown. So we learned a little bit of from the mistakes or, you know, the lessons learned of our first restaurant, how to how to sustain a little bit easier.
0: What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Maybe it's advice or a thought. Or just a feeling? Ooh,
1: what would 20-year-old Reem want to know? I think that I w- I'm enough. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I still struggle with this, but growing up, uh, you know, I when I was 20, actually, I, I was going through a mental health crisis, and that's what moved me out here to California. I was, I grew up in the East Coast. I was going. uh, I was getting my undergraduate degree at the time, and I hit a really hard spot in my life. Um, I developed a really bad uh, eating disorder, like acid reflux disease, and I had dropped a lot of weight, and I was really depressed. And I still ruminate on like what led to all of that. Obviously, there are a lot of factors, but I think the twenty-year-old Reem needed to know that she was enough you know um, we get so pressured to have to be super women um, in our families and our households and I was running on survival and I just couldn't do it and I think that my body and my mind everything just mm. broke <laughs> uh, but it's what led me to California to have a rebirth so I think everything happens for a reason I guess I know as cliche as it sounds but I was exactly where I was meant to be but it would have been helpful to know that what I was doing was enough.
0: I think that's good advice for any age, right? Wow. <laughs> any age, exactly. I know I keep
1: telling myself my bare minimum is like way beyond mm-hmm.
0: somebody, you know, is overachieving. So well, and speaking of overachieving, you released a book last year. It's been described yeah. as a combination of a cookbook and memoir. I'd love for you to take me through the process to get an overall feel for this time in your life. You wrote this book during the pandemic. It was released last year. Once it's out in the world, what does that feel like? Uh,
1: It's quite vulnerable. I mean, Arabia was kind of my way of reclaiming an identity and a persona that I felt like had been starting to get away from me. Um, you know, leading up to when I sold that book, I had gone through a lot. I had become a new mother. (laughs) I literally birthed a baby and then opened a fine dining restaurant with another restaurant group. Um, That was a very tough experience, you know, uh, walking away from that partnership because I needed to really stand true to my values. Um, But in that time, you know, the media was kind of posing me as this this chef with a meteoric rise to success. And yet I was struggling. I was struggling financially. I was struggling emotionally, um, health-wise, all of the things. And so writing this book was really my way to set the record straight. It's called Arabiya, which uh, is the Arabic uh, word for Arab woman. And I wanted to take all of these tropes that – people associate with Arab women when they hear it and turn it up on its head. And, uh, that's, that's really bold. And of course, in theory, it sounds great. But then when you release it out into the world, you're like, did I do the right thing? (laughs) I've always been really upfront about my politics. You know, my, um, I'm Palestinian. So being a Palestinian and proud of it alone creates in in notoriety, I guess, um, but I, I wanted to, I didn't want to just preach to the choir. I wanted to really be in the mainstream and show people how beautiful Palestinian culture is and Arab culture. And so, yeah, Arabia, well, you know, I, I wanted to write a memoir, <laughs> but people wanted a cookbook from me. So I figured out a way to s- sneak it in. Um, and I think I feel very proud of it, um, but it is vulnerable. I talk everything about my mental health issues to, Uh, my grandmother's story of being expelled from Palestine in 1948. It's not your typical cookbook. So to be, to put that out in the world, my family's history, you know, with somewhat their consent, but uh, you know, it's my experience. Um, That was pretty vulnerable. Um, But yeah, it was great. My, you know, I've, you know, it's been almost a, uh, a year since we released it and I've traveled around the country and Met other Arabs in diaspora, people who I've never who'd never come out of the woodwork had I not released this book, and told me how it spoke to them and their experience, and so that was really just so uh, such such a blessing because you know this wasn't just for me, but it was for all of all of the folks in diaspora who struggle with identity and the intersections of different identities which I've made very clear in the book.
0: To that effect, did it, releasing that, did it change your, do you feel like it changed your life overnight? Was there a, you know, you mentioned touring the country. Did you feel like, whoa, this is is a world I'm not used to? Or was it natural and flowing for you? Well, I think that,
1: at, at heart, I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a, an actress when I grew up. So <laughs> my mom said from a very young age, I was a performer. You know, part of my hospitality, uh, besides the cooking for you, making you feel comfortable, is the um, the entertainment aspect of it, I guess, so to speak. I've always been a natural performer, so to uh, so that part came natural to me. I think the part that didn't come natural to me is my introverted side, which is the need to make sure that everybody uh, likes me. <laughs> and that was hard because all eyes are on you and people project what they think you should be. And, and so, you know, I wouldn't say I'm famous, so but like locally, I think I became more of a known figure and I, I'm unaware of that, you know? And so people are kind of starstruck by me and that's just weird. <laughs> um, so that it took a while to navigate that, um, to know that like, okay, it's okay for people to admire me. There's so many things to admire about me, but I don't have to meet people's projections. You know, I can be myself. So I'm still trying to navigate that. Like I really try to be uh, as you know i wouldn't say i'm perfect in this i'm an awkward person by nature too one-on-one but that's part of i think my vulnerability and my awkwardness is part of my persona right the persona that i want people to see which is like i'm not perfect (laughs) i have my introverted days and um, but i'm always you know i i feel like having this platform did i mean the, the book definitely broadened my platform than just my restaurants could do, you know. So I feel like for that, that kind of opened up this new world of creation. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm more than... I don't want to be a small business owner for the rest of my life. And so that opened up the world to what it is that I could do and create and put into the world.
0: By the way, your personality because of all the things you described it's very relatable actually and so people can identify yeah. with you. totally and yeah like by like kind of uh
1: pr standards or the old school it's like you're not supposed to show these things but like why not you know i think that that people want to feel like they can relate yeah.
0: In the past year, what's one trip that you've been on that has positively impacted your life? This could be an actual trip, maybe overseas or here in this country. It could be a trip close to home, or maybe it's a good memory, like a trip down memory lane, or it could be a psychedelic trip.
1: I don't know if it changed my life. I mean, I think there are two trips that feel very distinct to me. Um... One is going back to my hometown, um, of uh, going back to Boston uh, for my book tour. Uh, that, was, that was a tricky one. Uh, Boston, you know, I grew up in these small suburbs of Boston where it was primarily white and I was the, t- you know, ambiguous brown kid. So I have a lot of trauma wrapped up in that space. Um, I had been estranged from my father for a long time, and he's the only one that remains in that place. Uh so most people go to their hometown, they feel like it's a homecoming. For me it, it feels like a very strange place to go back to. But something felt different this year as I went back as a cookbook author, you know, um because I had put all all my experience out on the record of what it was like to grow up in Boston, maybe. So I had had some closure on my relationship to that place. Uh, so maybe that helped a little bit, but yeah, it felt it felt like a very different trip to go out there and um, cook for people and talk about it and My dad got to see one of my demos, and to see him proud, I think was was a big closure or like full circle on our relationship he was the person that i took a trip with in 2010 that uh that started the whole dream of dreams. so that was a full circle moment yeah um we went to lebanon and syria and that was where i decided i want to bring that back to the u.s um and then the other one is uh really going to mexico And I spent a few trips there over the last year and a half. And that's been my place of uh, respite or kind of regrounding. And there's just something very familiar. It feels like the homeland, but it's closer, Mm -hmm. close. Um, And for, I think, those of us who are far away from the homeland, some of us who don't have the privilege of going back, uh, to the homeland having a place that feels so familiar where you feel like you belong uh, was very healing for me so I went to Oaxaca and Mexico City and Puerto Vallarta and different parts of Mexico that I feel like there's an affinity there's that intersection of Arabs and Mexicans that I want to explore more
0: I like that. And, and that almost brings us into, you know, where your mind is for the future. Like, I want to jump in your mind, see what you're cooking up in there, right? Because obviously yeah. your mind's going down there. <laughs> Lots of ideas. <laughs> but with the Boston trip, it's almost like a very profound experience of almost like you were suppressing feelings for many years. And then you're walking into that city empowered fully, you know? That's that's really... A new dream.
1: Yeah, not scared dream, not
0: traumatized dream. That's powerful. Good for you. Yeah. What's next for you? What are you working on right now? What are you excited for in the months to come? Yeah, so Reeves
1: is in this new exciting phase of growth. Um, I... uh, We are in search of... Uh, Chief Operating Officer, which is going to free up a little bit of more of my time. Um, We are transitioning into a worker co-op. So the work, you know, with our employees, empowering them to take ownership of REAMs has been a really exciting part that came out of the pandemic. Um, And we just signed a lease on a new um, space in in downtown Oakland. So we're really excited to be returning back to where we started. Um, And, you know, I think as people really take leadership of it's kind of like seed planting, right? Um, I'm excited to just see how it evolves on its own. Um, And my creative, that will free me up to do my more creative projects. Uh, I, I have a few projects that uh, are, you know, in in the works. Uh, I, we just announced today that I am part of the new lineup of a new talent agency, part of Whetstone magazine called HOME. Um, and that really focuses on a point of view of people, uh, you know, uh, folks of color who are revolutionizing the industry and really changing the game and the culture Uh, so being uh, represented by a talent agency is something that I've never uh, experienced so I'm really excited to spread my wings there do more speaking Um, going around the country and still touring with my book doing a lot they have a lot of uh, dinner collaborations that are happening with different chefs around the country so yeah, I think those are the things that are exciting. And yeah, just working on a few uh, more more film, you know, creative projects that way uh, that came out of Normal Ain't Normal. I think we talked about that series, but just, yeah, just finding more creative outlets to, to talk about some of the issues in the industry and how we're going to change it.
0: So a lot. Wow. Hello. <laughs> <A> <laughs> well, now knowing that as a child you know your mom said, "Yeah, you're going to be an actor" and 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 knowing these little things about you, it's really interesting how you wrote and starred in an episode of the scripted digital series Normal Ain't Normal. The series explores neighbors in Oakland who are navigating life as they come out of the pandemic, all the ups and downs. I watched it and was blown away. It was brilliant how many issues you covered, really, in under six minutes. So how did you become involved in this project?
1: Yeah. So this was a pandemic project, for sure. It came out of this... um, you know, we had already known that there were so many things wrong with the industry. I had been shouting it from a mountaintop for a long time you know, that things needed to change but obviously the pandemic unearthed so many of those disparities of the uh, unsustainability um, of the restaurant industry but, you know, our general food systems uh, specifically and, you know, I think the thing that I grappled with was that I was a cog the cog in the wheel is that, um, as, as this you know, middleman between capital, capitalism and my employees who are struggling, and I was struggling and just felt so powerless, and yet everybody was just like, all the food media was coming to me and being like, How are we gonna solve it? How are we gonna solve it? I'm like, I don't know, I'm trying to figure it out, and why should I do your job for you? Um, so I was really frustrated, and um a dear friend of mine who just started a company called Offside Productions, which were the, you know, executive producers of of this series, were coming up with this concept of uh, working class America. And so I pitched my idea of a chef gone rogue, (laughs) and they found a way to fit it in. Um, it, It just, there was a lot of synergy there. I really wanted to like get it out into the world. So it was very therapeutic. I got to play a fantastical version of myself. Um, And uh, we co-wrote it, uh, me and Josh. And it was really fun thinking about how do you cover these issues in a succinct way that keeps an audience engaged. Um, And there was so much more we wanted to cover, but couldn't. um, But I think we did a really good job of covering the basics.
0: And actually, I'm going to take your script from the show and quote lines that stood out to me and have you expand on the issues since we have more than six minutes to explore these topics. So the first one, you said, quote, I don't like being called chef. Chefs are bosses. They just want you to fear them. Please speak to the fear surrounding that job title.
1: Yeah, so you know the the concept of chef uh was really formed off of a um, uh, brigade system uh that uh is a really a military term um where the chef is at the top and there's chains of commands and for everything to flow and your food and your experience to be perfect which is in the context of europe right when we're restru- that that brigade system really flourished uh was for an elite diner right so get that experience at the expense of everybody else right and for all of that to be perfect everybody had to to work and do as they're told and in a flow and any kind of deviation from that ruins the whole system so it's a concept based on basically programming people by fear Um, and the chef and and we know sort of just looking at the prominent chefs, uh, their composition tends to be white, male, hetero, <laughs> um, folks that have privilege to be in those composition and the, the deeper you get into the back of the house, the darker it gets. Uh, so I didn't want to uphold that system and so the idea of not being called chef is like not to hold up that status quo. Now there's obviously people trying to redefine what a chef is and I'm obviously part of that um, but at that time it was just really hard uh, one after the other exposes of chefs and and it became uh, you know the the makeup of these chefs were not just white you know we're not just men it, it was seeping into every part of our restaurant so it's a systemic issue and so I was pointing out the fact that we're all susceptible uh, to these, systems of power if we we uphold them
0: next quote the only thing I've done to scare my workers is to breastfeed in the kitchen (laughs) you're a mom in the kitchen working full-time and whenever I'm interviewing a woman in this industry who happens to also be a mom we talk about what it's like for her because I don't feel that it's talked about enough so what has your journey to motherhood looked like?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been a complicated one. You know, I have a, he's almost five, I have a five year old and I always say, I love my child. I, uh, I love him, I don't love motherhood, you know? And that's a very bold thing to say because I think that people are like, she's super woman, she can do it all. She's a mother and she's a chef. and. And I'm like, no, that means that I'm not doing anything well because you expect me to uphold, you know, these these contradicting uh, virtues, so to speak. And you can never be all of those things all at once. You have to give up one thing to be the other. And there are certainly times in my life where I prioritized and, and like right now prioritize being a mother. Um, over working the long hours of the restaurant. And then there are times in my life where it had to be the other way around because I'm the primary breadwinner for my family. Um, so, you know, I wanted to complicate that a little bit. And uh, I made compromises to be able to, to do that. And literally everybody uh, at Reims saw my breast at one point or another because i was breastfeeding and working <laughs> and that wasn't fun i shouldn't have had to do that but that it was the case um so that was kind of gawking at that um funny story that uh i we we get these you know funny emails from uh, patrons of the restaurant to give us feedback uh when i was working at when i you know opened Dialfa, which was my fine dining restaurant we had this one customer complaint who was actually an old uh instructor from culinary school he used to do the bread baking class and he started off with saying like i you know uh she was a graduate of our program and food, you know i wanted to come in and say kudos to the chef and blah 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 and i sat at the table and basically like i wasn't treated as royalty she didn't come out and say hi to me meanwhile He's, he wrote all of this in an email, email. Meanwhile, I saw her sitting in the corner with her friends breastfeeding her her baby, paying attention to no one. I kid you not, this is an email. Um, and the, you know, that just kind of exposes what, what is the value that we place, very, very contradictory messages that we send to women. Um, So I still grapple with how can you have a career and be a perfect mother and all these things. I've just kind of embraced that some days I won't be a perfect mother, some days I won't be a perfect restaurateur. You can't, nobody is super,
0: superwoman like that. I think the key is to throw that word, perfection, out of the window. Don't have it exist in your vocabulary. Don't give it power, you know?
1: yeah, don't put me on a pedestal if you're not willing to see me breastfeed my baby in my own restaurant. Right. <laughs> on my day off. Right. Right. <laughs> and not come out and say hi to your royalty, you know, white male instructor. Right. That was just a really, really funny moment. I was like, this is very, very like, this is a symbolic. Of what is wrong in our society around working. Completely.
0: You know, I thank that man. He gave us a great example for this podcast. (laughs) Some good comic relief. (laughs) Well, next quote. Shit would be easy if I was a trust fund baby, like those famous white chefs on Netflix. Must be nice not having to be a bread maker and a bread winner all at the same time. Not having to deal with violent threats for being who you are, a Palestinian woman who dares to speak the truth. What do you think your life would be like if you were those chefs?
1: It'd be a lot easier, but boring. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's It's hard to put myself in that place because there are people who are born into privilege and use it for good. Um, But unfortunately, most people who are born into privilege are unaware of anybody but their own selves, uh, especially if they feel threatened that that privilege is going to be taken away from them. Uh, And I have made it pretty clear that in this industry, if we're going to change it, some people have to give up their power in order for other people to step into their power. And myself included. I sit in a place of power and privilege as a restaurateur. And that's why I've stepped aside in some ways uh, in my own restaurants to allow for people to take up that space. So
0: hopefully, I mean, the easy answer is hopefully I'd be a a cool, trust fund baby, but (laughs) who knows? (laughs) Next quote. I must have tricked these fancy food writers. Now they've got me in this weird ass world of VIP chefs and all this hype over who? What does that world of VIP chefs look like?
1: It's interesting to say the least. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm there, but I don't necessarily feel like I belong or can relate. Um, you know, I was just in Chicago last June for the James Beard Awards, and that was an experience. You know. Um, the whining and dining the clickishness who knows who to get what I didn't know anybody <laughs> uh, so but yeah I mean I appreciate those places again for the platform if you let me on the stage <laughs> you might be scared I, funny enough I you know obviously this this short has it has a, has a fictional version of of those stages, right? Um, that if I'm ever gonna be invited to an award ceremony again, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a it's a tale of two worlds, you know, and for me, I'm most accountable to my community. I'm not accountable to those spaces, but when given the platform i I, I try to to use it for good. but it's definitely a different world. Mm. I don't know, I, I, you know, I've never had caviar in the same way or appreciated the fine dining in the same way uh, that some of these people have. Let's just put it that way.
0: Next quote. How come we're around food all day long, but restaurant workers are some of the hungriest people I know? How is Tomas supposed to feed his kids off of eight bucks an hour at his last job? He barely had enough to feed himself. Your restaurant is in one of the most expensive areas in this country. How do you tackle living wage versus cost of goods versus cost of doing business? Uh,
1: we're just barely profitable. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's a question we're still trying to tackle. I think that um, the pandemic helped a little bit in terms of opening people's eyes up to how much it costs to run a business so that's been helpful but people have amnesia right and that was what this whole thing was about was like Tomas making eight dollars an hour and people paying uh, cheap prices for food was pretty normal like people didn't really think about it like we're so normalized or desensitized to these poverty-like conditions in our cities that um, that's problematic. So I think if anything's changed, there's at least an avenue or opening to have that conversation with our diners around, you know... Uh, there was a line in the in the, the movie that got cut out um, uh, because we just couldn't fit it, but it was... I'm trying to remember. It was like how... While convincing people that Arab street food is a cheap food. And so the you know sort of quote-unquote ethnic foods are foods that are made but that are cuisines that are non-european non-eurocentric are supposed to be somehow cheap when in fact our food is very sophisticated we use all local products all of that stuff so educating the customer about that and changing things that are rooted really in racism has been the biggest challenge for us Um, but We've done it, and we're non-apologetic about it. We got rid of tipping. We don't think that our, um, our workers should have to live off of people's tips to make a living wage. We provide living wages at, here at Reams, and we put a 20% service charge to be transparent. All of that goes equitably to our um, employees um, and allows us to pay benefits. So I think part of it is that we've really been explicit. Uh, with our customers, that they have to be investors in our business, not just patrons. This is not a service business. We're not at your service. we're We're in service to one another. So you as a diner are a partner in this experience in this transaction. But it's still not enough. The costs of supplies are still increasing. You know there are things about the recession that we're gonna be dealing with for a long time. So, I think the other thing that we are trying to do is to impact policy. You know, governments and um, nonprofits, all of these things need to be rewarding people who are doing the work that we're doing by subsidizing us to do that work so that we can stay afloat and be profitable and continue to exist as restaurants.
0: Next quote in Kendra, she worked. 10 years without a single sick day because her famous Michelin chef didn't know how to run his kitchen without her. I try to make sure that never happens here. Do you think that COVID positively contributed to a general awareness in our industry when it comes to sick days and the importance of giving people a day off when they feel they need one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. Um, I don't have the data to back that up, but just uh, from anecdotally from other uh, restaurant industry people, there's definitely been more of a focus on well-being and not just sick days. um, Dealing with the root, which is that people are overworked and um, underpaid to take care of their health, preventative health, right, Um, or preventative measures to take care of their health. So I think, at least at REAMS, we've really thought about what creates a sustainable business where people are not getting sick in the first place. Um, And obviously, we were much more paying attention to, I mean, we're in the Bay Area, so it's a bubble, but (laughs) we were much more cautious around COVID and making sure that all of our employees felt protected and whatnot.
0: How do you pay everyone well without pricing out your own people, especially when your landlord keeps raising the rent on you like you're some millionaire techie? Now, you just signed a new lease. So did you figure this one out or is... (laughs) Ah, we live in a land of
1: contradictions. Um, A little bit. Uh, This lease that we signed took us a year and a half. And honestly these developers were putting a lot of pressure and they are uh we negotiated a pretty good lease uh, but at the end of the day the developers are still the owners and so there's a contradiction in that i wish that one day we can own our own assets because those are the things that are going to appreciate and give us generational wealth uh i'm not there yet i hope to be there one day but um yeah i mean i think the world of money and capital um is a big one if if i if a bank could give me a million dollars to buy a space i would rather do that than sign a lease with a developer uh, to build their property for them and increase its value Um, that said you know we really stuck to our guns on this one and i think you know the pandemic really helped us be able to uh, get these better deals um, and Reams is seen as a community asset so they need us more than we need them and kind of walking into those negotiations with that mindset really helped us negotiate at least that will keep us in there um, at least in the, the, the life right. kind of, hopefully hopefully beyond that but
0: who knows with this economy next quote From the outside, people think that we're all good, that I'm all good. What are we supposed to say? What, that I'm miserable, that I feel alone, working 16 hour days, getting oven burns up and down my body while my baby boy hardly knows me? How do you feel today?
1: I'm working on it. (laughs) Um, I think that, yeah, it's hard to be uh, in a position of leadership, um, especially some, the types like me who have a hard time drawing healthy boundaries. Um, But I made a very conscious decision uh, coming out of the pandemic that I was not gonna go back to the way things were. And that has served me well. Um, But to the point that I mentioned earlier, That means disappointing some people, that I'm not going to be the fixer of all problems. Um, And I have to be okay with that. I have to be okay with just being enough uh, for the sake of my health and my sanity. Uh, So yeah, there's no shortage of work for me and I am trying to figure out, you know, when I say no to something, what am I saying yes to? Um, uh, and that has helped me cause it's hard to just say no to things, but I'm like, okay, I'm saying no to this so that I could step into this. Um, and that helps me stay grounded and a little less tired. <laughs> um, but I definitely try to take care of myself more, replenish, take days off, be with my child, be super present, turn off the notifications, but, and I try to model that, you know, so that other people, uh do the same
0: the work will be there tomorrow always (laughs) next quote everyone keeps calling me a success but I feel like a failure why are those feelings in your mind or were in your mind
1: I mean I had 30 people I was responsible for their livelihood the moment the shelter in place happened I had people demanding answers from me and i felt like I had failed them. I mean, it was just as simple as that. And that was part of the reason why I decided that a worker-owned model would be more sustainable because it's not sustainable to put the burden of so many people on one person. And and it almost almost felt like it was either I'm the person who failed them or saved them. And that didn't feel good, too. Like, I didn't want to be a savior, you know? uh, I didn't want to have that savior complex either so I think but yeah it, it sucks to feel I was like the mama you know the person that everybody was looking to for the answers and I had none and it was a setup once I figured out that that's a setup that helps but imposter syndrome is real imposter syndrome is something that particularly women deal with all the time because we're gaslit all the time to think to be conditioned to do more because we're capable of it and so we're always going to feel like failures even when we're doing a lot so I think the, all those things were going in my mind at that, that point point. Um, and also capitalism is real and I think I was pointing to I had all this fame and success on the outside but that didn't actually pay the bills that didn't translate to me being able to pay my rent you know and so the fact that I had to take assistance during the pandemic, I failed my child. You know, the fact that I couldn't afford certain things, that felt like a failure too. You know, for better or for worse, you know, how much you make or all of that uh, does sometimes impact how successful
0: you yeah. feel. And I applaud you for being open about that because you have a lot of people that look to you and assume. Oh, she's famous. They have money. She must be
1: rich. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all.
0: You know, I'm curious. How does, because I think other people would find it illuminating, how does your worker-owned co-op operate? How does that operate? It's it's almost like people listening, you are really educating them because it's kind of radical in a way, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, a a lot of unlearning has to happen to have a mindset of an owner. Um, Even for myself, when I first started Reams, it it took me a minute um, to really have to to have that mindset. I think that, you know, the main difference at Reams of, um, you know, going from employee to owner is that you have stake. You have like a real stake in how profitable this business is everybody get you get to gain from it the business's bottom line is your bottom line and that's motivating um everybody has had a voice at reams uh even uh, without ownership but like to have a voice where you feel like actually the having a say in the decisions that are actually going to impact you that those changes actually happen <laughs> motivates you to be even a a more active employee. Uh, You know, we say it's like worker-owner. You have to think like a worker and an owner. Um, And so, yeah, I think the way that we're setting it up is really to have a governance structure where we still have managers. There are still people who are responsible and accountable at the end of the day. But there are systems where there's a democratic participation where people are building their skills, because they're not—they don't have to be an owner forever. They don't have to be at Reims forever. They can, buy you know, they can take those skills and start their own business or be a leader elsewhere. So they're fully translatable goals or skills, rather.
0: How do you continue to find inspiration each year?
1: Um, I'm just a a student. At heart, um, novelty and discovery is what motivates me. Once I once you think you know it all, that's when you're in the most trouble. I got pretty bored easily. I I need to be continuing to sharpen uh, sharpen my mind, my brain. That's like what opens my heart a little bit. Um, so I feel like the people that I meet and the knowledge that I gain from. You know, whether it's my cookbook tour or talking to other restaurateurs or learning a new cuisine, all of that stuff keeps me motivated and inspired.
0: Um, yeah, just the idea that I'm a student every day. What does your ideal future look like?
1: Ah, uh, I don't know. I think there are multiple realms and multiple universes. <laughs> uh, some days it's like, just having some stability <laughs> where there's like a good work-life balance where you know I'm in my child's life and you know my businesses are running themselves and I get to to come in every day and just check in with folks having that stability is great and then some days I'm like nah I want to travel around the world and meet new folks and start different projects <laughs> I, I, I think I am kind of a, a, not a workaholic, but I, I do get, I just, I need to, I think I have ADHD or something. I need to have my hands in a lot of different projects. So I think ideally if I had the means to, you know, expose my child to this world uh, that I'm building, uh, where we're creating our own models uh, and being able to take him on trips with me, you know, as I'm doing right now having him feel inspired I think that would be the ideal future for me.
0: Have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? If so please describe the moment. I mean I think that you know getting into La Cocina was a huge
1: one sort of the um I had taken every entrepreneurship class that was available to me when I was like really hungry for REAMs, you know, and I think one of the advice that I give to new business owners is just talk about your dream, manifest it, talk about it to anyone and everyone who will listen. And you never know, somebody knows somebody who knows, has some resource and I remember like a friend who I would have never expected had family friends who had this restaurant where I did my first pop-ups. And that's where I got introduced to La Cofina, the incubator program, and they came, and I was able to be accepted in that program, you know, through that exposure, so, and I think had it not been for that, I tried to quit so many times, I and mean, we started off as a small farmer's market operation, and I was a one-woman show, and they just kept throwing resources my way, and had I not had them, who knows where I would be today.
0: A flow state, also known as being in the zone, is the mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity and enjoyment in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity and it's euphoric feeling. It's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak and a sense of happiness flows through your body. For you, it could be as you're cooking, perhaps, maybe writing or acting. I'm wondering if you've ever reached this state. And if you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it and what it felt like. Flow state. You know,
1: I, I have. I mean, I think that it's all of those things, but the the feeling is the connection with the human. It's hard to describe, but it's like watching someone eat my food. I remember the first time when the shut, like when we, the world opened up again, and I watched someone eat my manouche. I like cried. You know, it was just like that act of making someone's day. Um, so when I do my cookbook and we have these dinners and everything is just flowing, and the people are so happy and they're just convivial and you're creating that experience it's just like you're in the zen it doesn't you know you're exhausted but it just feels so euphoric so I always try to recreate that experience (laughs) but um, yeah I I feel like it's mostly in food related when I'm cooking a meal and people are just it's changing people's mindset Um, so whether
0: it's in my restaurant or in my home yeah how do you want to be remembered? I think I want to be remembered as
1: uh, a seed planter, you know, uh, really helping people find that, that, that inner thing um, that helps them grow. And uh, as someone who built community, built resilience in my community through the work that I did. The Palestinians on the map made us feel a little bit closer to our self determination. I feel like I want to have my legacy be a part of that work um, that my people have done before me.
0: I think those things. Love that. That's it. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, encounter lessons that shape us into our best lives. And I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey or general life advice that you live by.
1: I think if I had to boil it down, uh, listen to your gut. You know, everything you do, just be present for it. Your gut is always right.
0: (laughs) Your intuition tells you so much. Absolutely. And where or how is the best way for people to connect or get in touch with you?
1: Uh, Folks can follow me on Instagram. That's probably where the most updated on my whereabouts at ream.aseal. Um, or follow reams california see what we're up to it's at reams california um we are, we're, we're, our website is www.reamscalifornia.com perfect
0: well thanks for listening and if you haven't already follow have you eaten yet wherever you get your podcast.